now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Are we on 10 debates at this point? Double digits. Is it, why? What, what do we have to learn? Give the people what they want, Nick. <laughs> the socialists, the robots, Nana Warren, Grandpa Joe. I just, I, Corn Pop. Corn Pop. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck, apparently. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I'm in a mood today. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. Uh, I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey. And uh, we have senior legal analyst uh, Tom Campanaugh with us today as well. Hi, Tom. How are you all? Doing wonderful. This isn't the libertarian moment. Having seen the playpen full of Democratic candidates last night bickering (laughs) with each other, I don't know whenever there will be a libertarian moment. (laughs) Might take a while. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff, if you guys uh, like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, beers that we try, you can find it untapped on iOS or Android, just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms, uh, review us, share us, like us through there. Uh, and then our merch line, which you can find on teespring.com. Uh, you'll find a direct link on our social channels. So do both of those things. Um, yeah, we're adding new stuff all the time. I say that and we haven't added anything new in a while, but it sounds good. Phil and I were talking about a t-shirt about norms. Do you remember we, we had lots of different varieties of what we were going to say? I thought you we were going to do the the cheers one where it says norms instead of norm. Yeah, but, we, that too. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we had, there was, what we were talking about something about, uh, you know, politeness in the political context. And our t-shirt idea was, politeness is a norm dumbass or something like that i, I really like the idea of an ass hat i don't remember it was, it was good though it was a good it was a good one yeah, that's super easy i'm definitely gonna do that <laughs> <laughs> anyways like i said you can find uh, a link to that on our social channels we do have some t-shirts uh and hoodies and, and mugs right now so keep an eye out on that but uh, we have tom here we're definitely going to talk about uh, the supreme court um we're going to talk about the coronavirus uh Bernie, the socialists, and a few other things. Broccoli samosas being one of those things. And cow pastures. Cow pastures as well. (laughs) Um, Bill, can you give us a a quick rundown? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to start by talking about the Supreme Court and looking at some of the cases coming in front of the court this year. As Nick noted, we're lucky to have our senior legal expert, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, back with us to walk us through it all. Our theme for this session is God, guns, and money. Uh, We're going to look at an upcoming case on adoption that could fundamentally change the rules governing when people with religious objections to a law may ignore that law. We're also going to look at some interesting wrinkles that have emerged in the New York gun case. And finally, the Bloomberg campaign has crossed the $500 million mark in spending in what will almost certainly be the most expensive expensive presidential race in history. Uh, Given this development, it might be useful to take a look back at Citizens United. Tom, it's shaping up to be another consequential term 
term for the Supreme Court. Where, where should we start? Boy, it's hard to know. This is uh, a blockbuster term, I think, probably by any measure. I'll start by saying this, and it's a sentence that's very rarely uttered in American uh, life. The Ninth Circuit was affirmed today. They are the most overturned circuit in front of the Supreme Court year after year. The case itself isn't all that important. What's noteworthy is that a unanimous Supreme Court upheld a Ninth Circuit uh, opinion. Uh, They're on track for about 70 decisions this year. There's just a small handful out uh, at this point. Every year they inch down the number of cases. 70, we're 70 compared to other years. Uh, They've been in the 80 range and they may get that Mm -hmm. high, but at this point it's hard to imagine that they're going to give a take cert for a case and hear it this year. In fact, the first case we're going to talk about, they've granted cert and it's the second case for the October 2020 term, which is next year's uh, Supreme Court term. Um, But uh, third, uh, I'll just note that Ruth Ginsburg is out of the gate as the fastest author she has the most uh, majority and minority opinions written. So for those thinking that her infirmity may have slowed her down, <laughs> she's, and this is, this is very conventional for her. She's a quick writer. She works fast with her clerks and gets things done. So here's my overarching question as we think about these cases, and uh, uh, there's a lot of them. How conservative is this court? I- I've kind of made the case that with John Roberts sitting in the middle in a way that's very similar to the way Justice Kennedy did, that it's a pretty balanced court. But you continue to hear as you drive out to work on the radio or wherever that this conservative court is going to do the following. And it does feel like uh, more recently there has been, a, a, a tilt might not be the right word, but a bit more of a conservative feel to the way they have responded to the cases in front of them. So let's get a couple of them mm-hmm. on the table and then maybe in the background, think about that question. Is it really a conservative court? So uh, last calendar year, but at the beginning of this Supreme Court term, uh, we talked about the trio of HR cases involving sexual identity. They are enormously important. And I won't go back to those, but just to note them. And we talked about a couple of really interesting criminal cases, one eliminating the insanity plea and one talking to the question of whether or not a unanimous jury is required in a criminal case at the state level. So I want to mention uh, in this guns, money and God uh, category, uh, a couple cases. Let's start with God Mm -hmm. uh, and adoption and religious education and religious liberty. Uh, The case that they took yesterday uh, asks whether or not the Catholic Social Services Network uh, can uh, be excluded from a foster care system on the grounds that they will not place foster children in same-sex marriage homes. They're joined in this lawsuit by a number of foster parents um, who say that they would like to work through the Catholic Social Service System and not through a different one, and who cannot because they are prohibited from doing this. Now, note that the court has a case that they've already heard oral argument in, and that involves Montana and a voucher system. So the court is deeply into conscience and God cases this year, if you roll in those sexual identity cases as well. Um, uh, This adoption case has the makings of something that could change American law. Uh, That is, this might be, instead of, let's say, the follow-up to the Masterpiece Baking case, the one in which the court says, here are the boundaries for religious liberty. Here's what we're permitting. Here's what we will not permit. Um, So even though we won't hear oral argument until October or November of next year, 
it's gotten a lot of press this year because it's a really big deal. And the master ba- uh, masterpiece baking case mm-hmm. was was it didn't involve government services, but this adoption case is is dealing with government services, right? Government funding. So that yes, that makes it a, 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 in some ways a more consequential. That's case. exactly right because theoretically it invokes both establishment and free exercise clause uh, dimensions. Um, but it's it, it's it fits in this ambit of religious conscience uh, that the court has tried so hard to stay away from with narrow rulings and and that sort of thing. And so I think everybody's wondering, and I'm I'm one of them. When are they going to do the big ticket case? in which they finally say the lemon test we're going to eliminate or uh, bake the cake if you like or not. And maybe this is the one because the Montana school case is a narrower uh, sort of thing. It really just asks about tax credits and uh, a state level program that shifts some money to parochial schools. And they've got law on this already. Um, You remember we talked about the Lutheran Mm -hmm. uh, case in which playgrounds were resurfaced. That's going to be the case that drives the Montana one. So it's probably not going to be a big ruling. The adoption one is head on. Can you tell a religious organization that they are not permitted to participate in the public square with public money unless they follow your rules? So a few things could happen. The court could say, yeah. That's exactly what we're going to tell them. And they could reinforce the employment division versus Smith case. This is a very controversial Scalia opinion that said a neutral rule applied to everybody, applies to everybody, even if it burdens religion, ex- uh, religious exercise. They could overturn that Scalia case and say, we're not prepared to apply neutral rules in ways that burden religious practice if maybe there are alternatives. Catholic Social Services isn't the only foster care business in town, and there's lots of ways to be a foster parent and to place foster children in same-sex homes, same-sex marital homes, even if you don't use Catholic Social Services. Now, my understanding is that this is, uh, Philadelphia is is the governing body here, and they have a law on the books that says you can't discriminate and and so it is the, that's what they're challenging. They're saying that this, they, they should be given an exemption to this, right? That they should be able to discriminate on who they place children at in right. contradiction so, to the, the standing law. Exactly. So uh, plaintiffs uh, here who have lost thus far um, take the position that this is a, a anti-religious bias of the kind perhaps that was used in the masterpiece case, though it's not so overt, and that it is a burden on religion that is inconsistent with the First Amendment. Philadelphia says, not so. Uh, We've got a neutral law applied in the same way as against everybody, but it happens to be the case that in applying that neutral law as against everybody, it burdens you in a way that is more significant than it burdens others. So uh, a conservative court Mm -hmm. maybe is more protective of religious liberty than employment division versus Smith. And, and ironically, you know, the, the, the most conservative justice in a long time, Scalia, is the one that wrote mm-hmm. Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, a less conservative court is likely to side with Philadelphia and to say we have precedent. Maybe it's Roberts joining the other four. Maybe it's Gorsuch joining the other four and taking the position that it's a neutral law applied in a neutral way that has as an ancillary consequence the burdening of religious liberty. But it's going to be in some ways, and I think this is what's really interesting about a lot of these, it's a test of how conservative the court is. 
I, I keep I, I can't help but think about uh, in my international law class. I we read a case, and I wish I could remember the title. It was it was the a case brought against the Bush administration um, by a reproductive rights organization, and it was about the 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 policy during the Bush administration and in other administrations against. Um, providing funding to any sort of nonprofit organization that that allows for abortions, right? And they were it, it was the other way, in that there were groups who basically sued, saying it infringed on their freedom of association and their freedom of speech. So groups that wanted to, you know, work for you know choice type type policies around the world, if they worked with a, a group, you know, anyway, other groups around the world were unwilling to work with them because it would endanger their funding. And the court's decision in that case was essentially that, yes, this is a discriminatory. It, it is discriminatory in that, you know, we are saying that only certain groups can have access to the funding, but policy is discriminatory, right? The, the government has the right to set policy. And in this case, they are setting policy that is a pro-life policy. And that's part of their power. It feels like if that is the decision that was made, then it should it should line up again in this case to say that the government has a right to set policy. And if they want to set a policy that says you can't discriminate based on sex, they have the ability to do that. A, a conservative or a, a conservative uh, ruling would go would kind of flip that logic. It would it would. It, it, what's interesting is that the, that was a conservative ruling. It was on behalf of the Bush administration saying the Bush administration has the right to discriminate based on abortion policy or whatever, because they set policy. Um, in this case, a conservative opinion would have to go against the president's power or the executive branch's power to set policy, essentially. Well, this is the city of Philadelphia, so it's not a federal okay. law. And, and that may make some difference because that's how you trigger employment division, which also involved a state level law that said you're not going to get unemployment uh, if you're a drug user. And here are these guys that use peyote. Um, though I, I think in general terms, you're right. There, there is a sort of schizophrenia about how to answer all of these questions. And I know that I've said before, and I think we've, we've had a conversation about it, the law, the tests don't work. And, and as society has evolved, the tests and measurements for just how much burden you can place on mm -hmm. a person's conscience um, have not grown with it. Uh, and, and the court's going to have to do something about this. It's not a, let me use the coronavirus. It's not a matter of when it's a matter of, of if it's a, it's a matter of when well, I think they're going to have to decide these cases because there are so many other issues coming. And to me, as I think about the big picture of this, this is a battle over, freedoms, right? That's Who's exactly freedom? Right. So you've got one group, the LGBTQ community, arguing that this is an issue of our freedom. And these laws that are being passed against discriminating against us are part of our search for freedom. And then you've got these other groups saying, passing those laws encroaches upon our religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, it's going to have to be the court parsing what freedom looks like and is it is it individual for these individuals in the gay rights community is, is that freedom more important I, I don't know how they do it i mean this is incredibly difficult well, one, right I, it's it, it's yes yeah I, I, anything that asks conscience questions yeah. is difficult because you're not uh you can't quantify these as easily as you can trademarks and patents and and some of those sorts of things but uh, I, I think to myself here the harm done to the catholic social services which has um, a 2,000-year-old doctrine, I don't mean Catholic social, the Catholic Church sure. um, is different than the harm done to a community that simply goes to a different foster home agency. 
In the same way, the harm done to a baker who is driven out of business by a, a regulation is different than the harm done to somebody who walks down the street to the baker he recommended. I don't, mm -hmm. please don't hear me saying that I think neither, uh, th there isn't a dignity and a freedom argument on the other side. I think there is. But there have been arguments made to the court that one way to think about this is it would be one thing if Commonwealth Edison said, we are a monopoly on electricity mm -hmm. in Cook County, and we're not putting electric lines into same-sex uh, marital homes. You're going to have to use natural gas or something sure. like that. There's no alternative. There's an enormous and powerful harm done. And government clearly has to say that kind of conscience argument can't pass muster. On the other hand, where there are multiple plausible, easy, similar cost alternatives, it is easier, at least under those circumstances, to protect the conscience rights on one side where the other simply has to go somewhere else. What about in smaller communities? Because I think that's right. In a big city, it's, it's not an issue. But what about in a small community where the Catholic services may be the only option for adoption for a gay couple? Because uh, I think about that. It came up in Masterpiece, right? Did, yeah, that's what I think about the, the cake as well, right? I mean, it's one thing if you're living in a city, a cosmopolitan yeah. city, where you can go to another cake shop. Cake shop but if there's one cake shop, uh, then those those two conceptions of freedom come head to head. And maybe that's part of the test, yeah. is the degree to which uh, the harm to both sides uh, is different and, and more. Right. Right? Uh, Go ahead. Oh, no, no I, was, I was looking up to you. I thought you were. No, I, I can't help but feel like this ties back to the, the you know, what we started with a minute ago, which are the, the other cases about the rights of the LGBTQ community in general. Right. Because it, the, the example you gave seems sort of plausible, plausible. But if we were talking about race instead, right, if, if the argument was, uh, you know, somebody who said we're just not going to, you know, we're not going to serve African-Americans or we're not going to place children in African-American homes. Um, it would be that that seems to strike our conscience in a, in a much harder way uh, in, in society. And so it's back to this question of, what, you know, what sort of do protections does do do the does the LGBTQ community have the same protections as, you know, racial minorities or, you know, based on, you know, women. Right. So in that case, even if there are multiple services, if 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 an African-American walks into a, a you know, a, a bakery and the guy says, yeah, we don't serve black people, um, that's a that's I don't know. That seems clearer to me in some ways. It's not just about go somewhere else and it's OK. You haven't been harmed. So it feels like we talk about these rights in a different way than we do. And, and that's the it feels like it, until we get that figured out, the answers to these sorts of questions are going to be difficult. It seems like you, you have to begin at that first point of, of defining what are the basic rights and protections of the LGBTQ community in some ways. I, I hope I didn't suggest that one side had no harm and another side. No, no you, you didn't. They're, they're disparate in, in, in degree. Um, and, and so I guess I'd say two things to that. The first one is um, there are, uh, uh, and, and case law has supported them, uh, adoption agencies that will not give uh, a black child to a white family. Uh, and it, that's, that's a sort of equivalent here, right? We're making a judgment about uh, who we will take in as foster parents, where we will place children, and we will take race into consideration. And we'll do it in a way uh, that arguably harms um, a potential adoptive set of parents, say two white parents that want to adopt a black child or vice versa. And 
there, it's it's not as easy as saying, well, we always protect race, and we're going to do it mm-hmm. in this circumstance too. Um, was there reason? Was the reasoning policy reasoning? Was it about uh, the success of of interracial foster families versus, or was it just that we don't think it's right? Yeah, it was predominantly. Uh, the, the judicial opinion uh, was in terms of sort of preservation of culture and, and does a, does an African-American child belong in an all white house? And if they are raised there, uh, are they still part of the, the, our culture mm-hmm. kind of thing? And I, I only raise it to say that even in the context of race, there are some ticklish difficult issues in, in this kind of context. I'm totally with you, Phil, though, at a, at a different level. If somebody walks in and says, I I'd like, a lunch uh, plate, and the answer is no, you're black, you can't have one. Um, I, I can't imagine a law that says, um, well, you're gay, you can't have one either. But I guess what the court's going to have to figure out is uh, how to do, let's just say this, what was said in Masterpiece and what was said in Obergefell more directly. Mm-hmm. That is, the court acknowledged in those cases that there are people of genuine religious conscience that think differently about uh sexual orientation and that that is not like thinking differently about race. But there's, there's religious, there are people who say that their, uh, their racism is religiously based as well. Right. So, I mean, there, there are lots of arguments, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that's a respectful, like I respect your, you know, conservative religious beliefs that I, that black people are inferior, that we wouldn't tolerate that. Right. And that's, that's where I wonder. So you're opening the door here for a religious exception does the court want to go down that that path where now well, I guess suddenly the point I was making wasn't to endorse obviously yeah. a, a, a racist religion the point I'm making is the court's already gone down that road when they said in Ober- and you remember this yeah. right i mean it was it was very prominent in in uh, the chief justice's opinion look we are not foreclosing arguments on conscience on the basis of this case because we recognize and hope that we will find a way to respect long-standing, genuine, authentic religious belief. Um, how they're going to do that, I'm with you, Bill, is massively yeah. complicated. But th- there the court did say this is different than other things. That is, sure. uh, sexual identity is different than other things. And the way we learn to navigate this may also be different than the way we handle, say, race or ethnicity or other Title Seven categories. And it does feel to me that the conservative movement has is really seizing upon this idea of religious freedom. And there's going to be a lot of cases that are going to be coming in front of the court. And so yeah. there, it's going to be case after case right. where they've got to decide whether they're going to hear all of them or come up with a standard. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah abortions back there, you all remember. So, I mean, it really is the case that you could make uh, a claim that one of the most difficult things the court's going to have to do in the next four or five years is understand American conscience and and figure out how we can live amicably with one another. In this partisan environment. In this partisan environment. Oh, my God. Well, that's God. We should probably... Yeah, and the others, (laughs) I don't know that we have to spend as much time on the others, but, you know, who doesn't like God, guns, and and money? Yeah. Um, Why don't we move to guns just for a moment? Because... uh, uh, I, I, this case involves uh, a New York uh, City statute that said if you're a gun owner in the post-Heller universe, you can keep your gun. But what you can't do is take <laughs> it out of your house and transport it anywhere. Uh, this seems to be completely senseless. And New and York even removed, right? And when it came, to, they, they pulled it back. Well, that's what I want to get to. Yeah. Uh, we, we mentioned when we teased this case, this great phrase, bad faith mooting. And, and I, we all laughed about it, but I want to come back to it because there's two dimensions of this case that are really interesting. Um, so New York says you can't transport your gun. 
they're sued and they knew they would be. And I think what they hoped would happen is that they'd win far enough that the plaintiffs give up or mm. that they'd win far enough. What I mean by that is a district court, an appellate court, you know, that, uh, or that the Supreme Court would deny cert, which would effectively let them do what they're doing, even if there was some belief on the Supreme Court that it was a Second Amendment violation. This is bad faith mooting. Mm-hmm. That is testing the court and then repealing your own law just ahead of the big ruling that makes a judgment about whether it was appropriate in the long run. Um, The justices have said that they're not thrilled with this approach. And I think you can see why. Once they take a case, Mm -hmm. there's only 70 a year. So to have spent the time and the money and the energy to grant a cert petition and then have somebody say, well, we just knew all the way along, we'd repeal the law if you said you'd hear the case, that's bad faith. Mm -hmm. So let's go on and say that the oral argument in this case, and these are sort of the developments since we last talked about it, focused very heavily on whether the case was moot because of uh, this repeal of the law. And Justice Gorsuch was having none of it. Uh, That is, he doesn't like the idea of the bad faith mooting and his general demeanor, and I think it was true also of, of Thomas and Alito was, the questions don't go away just because New York repeals its law. And it isn't moot if there are still live controversies that we could address. And the live controversy might be that the way they repealed the law was to say, well, you can transport your gun, but only in a continuous, uninterrupted path to a place where you're allowed to use it. So there were really funny interchanges. Justice Alito stops uh, New York's lawyer to ask, well, what if he wants to stop and say hello to his mother on the way to the gun range? Does that violate the city ordinance? Well, I'm afraid it might, you know, because it's got to be a continuous, uninterrupted path. The idea being that even the new statute imposes a burden Mm -hmm. and that maybe they were too smart by half. Mm -hmm. They didn't just repeal. They repealed and replaced. And now they got a different law. But the law is sufficiently similar that it might not moot the original case. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the last thing, and let's knock it around a little bit. They didn't have a really quick ruling. So the oral argument's been uh, about a month ago. And if they'd gone back and voted the same week, 9-0, the case is moot, let's get rid of it. Or even 5-4, the case is moot, let's get rid of it. You'd have expected that to come down already. Instead, nothing. Crickets on this one so far. So I think what Second Amendment advocates are thinking is maybe the Gorsuch argument that we should get to the merits of the case is carrying the day, or at least that there's still some possibility that it might. I have a question that comes from the fact that I don't have a legal background. Uh, so typically someone has to be injured, right? There has to be in order for someone to have standing to bring a case. So how does that play in here? So if, if I've been wronged by this law, right, I have some sort of injury from this law, I can bring the case. But then if they've done away with the law, I'm no longer injured, right? So how, how does that, or, you know, I, I, I was injured, but it's, you know, that's kind of the argument, right? But we've done away with it. So how do they get around that from a, it, it seems like I understand the point, which is there's an issue to be addressed, but there's lots of issues to be addressed that the court can't take up because there's not, you know, some, someone withstanding to bring that up. The court doesn't just get to decide to address it. So how does that play out in this case? They say they have standing for two reasons. The first is that the, the current statute, the iteration, the, the second iteration of uh, the, the no transport one still violates their Second Amendment rights and is inconsistent with Heller. 
The second argument they make is that they are still considering seeking money damages for the mm -hmm. earlier violations of their Second Amendment right. So they're, they're conscious of the fact the court needs some hook yeah. to put the, the standing and ripeness uh, uh, hat on. These are thin ones, and, and Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor thought mm -hmm. they were implausible ones. Um, but I don't know. If somebody says, I'm, you know, listen, I'm going out for errands, I'm going to stop at the gun range, but I'm also going to, you know, I'm stopping at the grocery store. Got to get some gas, go to the bathroom. Uh, get some gas. I might, I might go look for, uh, you know, a Catholic social services foster <laughs> child while I'm out just to roll them off. You can't do that. Now, is that a huge burden? I guess you could argue it might not be. Uh, on the other hand, if it is an inappropriate burden, given what the court said in Heller and McDonald, then they ought to take up the case and say so. The big issue here is states and cities making owning a gun as difficult as they possibly can and then just trying to outlast the litigants against them. And that's what I'm, do you think they will, obviously this feels like it's an easy decision to say that the New York law was wrong and constitutional. How far do you think they'll weigh in? The court will weigh in to give some guidance for where states should be, right? Where is that line? Do you think they'll go that far or do you think it'll just be, this was, was bad? Well, I, I've thought about I've given it a lot of thought because tests are everything for mm -hmm. this court, right? How, how do you make a judgment about when you can do a particular thing? And, and the current test for, uh, regulation of abortion, which is uh, the right way, mm -hmm. uh, right? Let's regulate abortion and bad faith moot cases or that sort of thing is when you reach a point that there is an undue burden on a woman's reproductive choice, you have gone too far with your local or your state regulation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the question in front of the court this term is whether or not this, you've got to have admitting privileges in a hospital within some number of miles, is that an undue burden? Now, I realize that's not a wonderful and clear test, but it's a different one than no test at all, which is what the current environment is. You're allowed to own a gun. You're allowed to possess a gun. You're allowed in your own house maybe to use a gun. In a New York's universe, now you're allowed to drive it somewhere other than your mm -hmm. home. The question is whether or not the current New York, at least one way of thinking about it, is the, does the current New York regime put an undue burden on a gun owner. And it's entirely possible that whatever that ruling may be could inform the abortion ruling as well, right? In terms of thinking about what an undue burden on a state is, whether we're talking about guns or could. whether we're talking about abortion. I think it could, because what both sides do, these are these are sort of the sacred yeah. things for each side, right? I mean, the right abortion, the left guns, uh, I mean, in terms of the, the, the great evils. And um, they're going to have to address the undue burden one because they've got a case this term. So uh, all nine of them are on a table right now talking about how do we apply that test or do we change that test? It's not the only one, but in the gun case, there is no test. Mm -hmm. So, so we've got to have one and, mm. and that's as good a candidate as, as I can imagine. That's interesting. All right. Do we get to money? Got to do money. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is what's so disheartened Nick, who's been uh, silent today thus far. <laughs> oh no, I'm just given how disheartened he is I'm by the entire intently. American situation. <laughs> um, so here's the money case. It's a really, I, I want to come back to citizens because Two things happened this week, only one of which uh, Bill mentioned. The first is that uh, Bloomberg, who's worth $63 billion. Jeez, that's, that's Barker money. That's yeah. Barker money. <laughs> Barker looked like he wanted to say something about that. But he's no, it's, I'm, I'm like, say, I, I, I'm, it's nice of you to say that, but I'm at 58. I'm, I'm at 58. I'm not quite there. I'm not quite at Bloomberg level. 
So he's at half a billion dollars in spending, uh, uh, even though he isn't yet really serious. Well, he is now a, a serious part of the, uh, the race. But quietly as well, Elizabeth Warren uh, has said she's going to take PAC money. Now, remember that in her universe, Citizens United is the, the worst decision the Supreme Court's rendered uh, since, I don't know, Justice Pitney was on the court or something like that. <laughs> and she has said for her entire political career, I'm not taking PAC money. Well, now she is. And she's taking it because of the other thing. That is, Bloomberg is outspending all of them by a very long shot. And the only possible way she sees herself being viable is to take the very money she said is totally inappropriate American politics. My son, son Fisher was livid about this yesterday. You guys <laughs> were the well, same. Uh, as well he should have been. Now, this won't be the first trip down uh, hypocrisy lane for uh, Elizabeth Warren. But so uh, here's the thing. What I'm wondering is, um, isn't what's happening right now exactly the argument in favor of Citizens United? You've got a well-funded, self-funded presidential campaign that absent PAC money on the other side is probably, I shouldn't say probably, might be irresistible to people. PACs are all that's going to save Elizabeth Warren. And uh, what I haven't heard her say is, I'd like to retract some of my thoughts about the evils of PACs and campaign finance. She just said, I'm not going to campaign with one hand tied behind my back. I'm going to take the PAC money spent in my uh, favor. So uh, I, I just want to raise citizens in the context of she's taking it and she should. And there's a good reason why citizens did what it did. Well, and you see Buttigieg has made a similar argument, or he's made the argument. Uh, Elizabeth Warren hasn't made that argument yet. Now, it's interesting. Bernie has not, right? Bernie is still playing a different game and still viable. So all of this is really kind of fascinating how it's all he's playing out. He's got the out. most money on right. that side, though. Yeah, I mean, and Bloomberg, Bloomberg. Right. Bloomberg, let's be honest, his ads are effective. I mean, he was terrible in the debate stage, but those ads, his ad team, I think it's brilliant. But it's not brilliant. That's the thing. There's just so many of them. How do you? How is it ethical that you run an ad for yourself during the Democratic debate? Oh no, no, it's not not ethical. And then well, you're paying know, people twenty five hundred dollars a month yeah. to post things on their own social College media students. channels. <laughs> Are you? fucking kidding me <laughs> but i will say it's having enough he is a, he is buying an election i mean i don't think he's going to win but he has bought his approval rating and i will say some of those ads that he he is running i find myself thinking those are really good ads and and i don't think he's going to win the nomination but if you're if your goal is to defeat trump some of those ads are really really good but is that and tom and i were talking about yeah. this before we started recording is your is your primary objective to beat trump or to uphold the standards and the principles of the party that you're running for well, or be, trying to become the no, uh, the nominee for it it, it de depends on the person right I <laughs> you know I think I think the party's <laughs> position well I don't know about I think two things are both at play here um, we've said many times two contradictory yeah, thoughts can both yeah, be true that's right. simultaneously yeah, <laughs> yeah Phil <laughs> well I think Phil's the that. one that says it yeah let's yeah. turn to Phil. Well, I, so I will. Uh, I feel the need to do a little defending of Elizabeth Warren. Oh. I feel like she's been uh, because I mean her her argument. She she made clear that she doesn't think that uh, she's still she's still opposed to Citizens United. The argument that she made was as long as we're playing a game in which everyone is playing by the same rules, right? Which is that we're not going to have unlimited spending from PACs. Then great, that's the best way to do it. But uh, if everyone else that I'm competing against is using these packs, I'm not going to, you know, tie one arm behind my back and, and not play. I mean, it's a similar argument. I, I'm not saying that that's right, but I think there's, there's nuance to it and there's thought to it. It's the same argument about, you know, 
you know, can it feels a little bit like people who are critiquing Bernie Sanders for having for being wealthy, right? And that he's arguing that the system is problematic. He doesn't have to be poor to say that the system is problematic. And so I feel like there's a little bit of the same thing there, which is Elizabeth Warren can say this is these rules are not good. Um, they are problematic rules. They should be reformed. But as it currently stands, these are the rules. And I'm going to be legal. I'm going to do it legally. I'm going to play by those rules. And if everyone else would have agreed to not use PAC money, then I would have been on board for that because I think that's the better way to do it. I, I, I see some truth to that. And I don't see that as hypocrisy. Do, do you see? I mean, that realistically was the same argument that Trump was making when he was during the debates in 2016 in terms of I use the tax loopholes that I did to become as rich mm -hmm. as I did to, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. mitigate some of my uh, uh, tax burden. Like yep. if I, I I feel like that's that's exceptionally hypocritical if this is a guy you're trying to beat in the sense of the way that he operates and the way that he presents himself. You're trying to come off as, as the antithesis of him. I get it. Like, realistically, I, I don't disagree with the point, but it, it seems slimy. So but I mean, the, the logical extent, but you can critique this, right? And, well, there's a couple of problems with that. One, Trump cheated on his taxes. <laughs> like It's been, it's been pretty well established. So, but but to, to critique the system that allows Trump to get away with that is is perfectly valid. And, and if Trump, if Trump had said that, I, I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with, you know, Trump having used those loopholes if he was also, you know, I, I, any, there, I don't see that as hypocrite, hypocritical. I, the idea that, uh, you know, that a, a Democratic candidate can only be valid as a Democratic candidate because they support the poor if they give away every penny they've ever earned to help the poor is a bad argument. And that's the that's the line that we're going down, that that if you have money, if you've in any way like embraced the rules um, as they currently sit, then you can't critique those rules and you are, you know, a, a hypocrite for for playing by those rules. I, I, I see two very different things, which is to say the system is problematic, but also, you know, I'm, I'm until the system has changed, which is what I'm working for. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, lose elections just for the sake of, of, you know, playing by the rules as I think they should be. This is a bigger question about the Democratic Party and changing norms. Do they continue to bind themselves to norms that the Republican Party or that Donald Trump doesn't live by uh, just out of purity, right? So Donald Trump doesn't play by, and, and I don't know the answer to that, right? I think it's a complicated question, uh, but it's, it's something that I see the Democratic Party wrestling with about do we adopt Trumpian tactics to beat Trump um, or do we let Trump do what he does and we'll be holy and pure and get our asses kicked? And mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to feel about that. I don't it's hard for me to figure out kind of where to come down on that. Yeah, picking nits with Phil, of course, is one of my favorite <laughs> activities. Uh, I, I am not calling it hypocritical to participate in a system that one is critiquing. I'm mm -hmm. saying it's hypocritical to say for much of your political career, I won't take or benefit from PAC money Correct. until you have to. That's the part of it that I think is hypocritical. I'm uh, actually inclined to agree that unlimited spending by PACs at the same time, there can be unlimited spending of one's own money on one's own self. Remember that citizens preserved all of the individual campaign finance limits that you and I have to live with. So I can't give Bernie Sanders $65 million to, to run. Um, 
I can give $2,500 per six-month cycle or something like that. So uh, the system I'm with you, Phil, is clearly broken. Uh, and maybe it was a gratuitous throw at, at Elizabeth Warren. But, you know, when, when, when you're holy and at least mm-hmm. act as though you are, then it feels to me like when you make claims like, I won't take that money or benefit from it and then do, that's something people can point out as problematic. Well, she came to this point later. I mean, because there were Cory Booker and, mm-hmm. and Buttigieg early on took that money sure. and made that mm-hmm. the argument that Phil made. Right. She didn't. And so it's, it's harder right. politically that's, when that happens right. later. 100% understandable in those situations. And they should have done that because that's the way the system works. Well, And Bloomberg just makes all of this so absurd when you see one. I mean, I, I'm really struggling with this. I mean, the guy was so terrible. He was slightly better in the debate last night, but he is not good on the campaign trail. Um, and, and it's just money that is making this difference here. I, yeah. oh, it, it just exposes the system for what it is. Well, now, imagine because he has literally no limit on his own personal spending. What if he spent ten billion dollars? Yeah. What if he put a check in the mail to every American for extent? Now, I'm not yeah. suggesting, of course, that that he, uh, but he has literally bottomless yeah. pockets. We get all up in arms about what Russia did in the 2016 elections. You know, Russia yeah, paid its own point. individuals right. to engage in Facebook ads. And what Bloomberg is doing is he's basically, you know, Phil kind of skirting these norms saying, I'm going to pay college students to do it. I'm not sure what the difference between a college student and, you know, somebody who works for the internet research agency in, in, in Russia is all that different in terms of trying to manipulate the system. Yeah. yeah. Which goes back to the, the question. Uh, so I, your Tom, your, your argument, I, I, I appreciate the idea that if Bloomberg is going to spend all of this money, then the only way to combat it is PACs. But it brings me around to the other question, which is uh, the real issue seems to be that Bloomberg can spend that much money. And, and so I, yeah. there's a there's a question, right? Because it does get to free speech. I'm kind of curious about your, I mean, the original argument is that it's your money, it's your speech. Um, and so it feels like there should be some limits on that, right? Because what the, the example that you just gave, which is that Bloomberg writes a check to every American for, you know, however much money, um, that seems to be beyond the pale, right? That's, that's free speech, but it's clearly problematic as, as in, in terms of how we structure a society. So is it time to revisit the notion that your own money is speech when it comes to these elections? Is there a better way to do it? Is there another way to do it? It feels like there has to be a different, you know, some alternative. I mean, there's systems all around the world that have alternatives. But what what I'm running into here is how do we reconcile that with this notion that our money is our speech? I don't know under the First Amendment how we do. All citizens did, just uh, as a reminder, we've, we've talked about it in this room. It said that corporations and unions have the same right to contribute to PACs that you and I do. Um, and that a PAC then can spend its money as it pleases and as much as it pleases. And the thinking was that because PACs are a step back from the actual candidates and can't have the same sort of individualized advertising, let's say that uh, Bloomberg can for himself, that this isn't that harmful. I, I don't know how you eliminate the money equals speech argument because it clearly is. Uh, and and Bloomberg's can- can- candidacy, Bill's point is is a good one exists entirely because of the money at Mm -hmm. this point um i suppose you could say that PACs and individuals have spending caps but you're going to have to reconcile that with all the first amendment jurisprudence that says Mm -hmm. you can't do that Um, you could liberate people to give as much as they want which would probably change nothing Mm -hmm. because if all of us pooled all of the money we've got on uh in the universe still not bloomberg money yeah um, 
as you know, I think that the third political party is the most important thing in America. <laughs> and uh, wouldn't it be great if, I hope there's a billionaire listening, uh, they started a pack for a third party. What, what if Bloomberg had said, this Justin Amash, the libertarian, we can't possibly raise enough money to compete unless I produce a pack that essentially says we need a third party, we need something better than what we've got. Uh, I, it would take principle and, and humility, which is not something billionaires always <laughs> have. But I, I guess I'm floundering, Phil, because I don't have a good answer. The way the court has talked about this doesn't leave a lot of options for us. Mm-hmm. And overturning citizens, I guess, ultimately my point today was, overturning citizens doesn't change the incredible disparity. It makes it worse. Mm-hmm because it makes it less likely you can compete with, compete with Bloomberg, Bloomberg rather than more. The, the, the irony of it in some ways, I, I think, is that we are also in an era in American politics where everyone hates the political parties. Yeah. But one of the solutions is stronger political parties, right? Who, who sort of choose leaders and put them out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know you don't like that. But if, instead, <laughs> in, if instead of individualizing these races, if they were, if there were part of a bigger, you know, two party system or a, a, a political structure, uh, it would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take money out of it, but it would do, a, it would alter the incentives. Um, uh, and, but yeah, anyway. We should talk beer. Definitely. That was really interesting. Yes. Phil, um, tell us about your beer. So I'm having I, a couple of times over the last few months, I've had beers from uh, Hill Farmstead Brewing uh, Brewery in Vermont, um, who is one of the top rated breweries in the world. Um, their double citra that I had a few weeks ago was, I, I still say, the best beer I've ever had in my life. So this is their- feel you've ever had. Yes. Yeah. So this is uh, their Motueka early harvest beer. So Motueka is a, a hop out of, a hops varietal out of New Zealand, apparently. Um, this beer is really good. Everything I've had from Hill Farmstead has been excellent. This is also an excellent beer. I don't I, just out of personal taste, I don't like it as much as the citra. It's not as citrusy. It's a little more kind of floral and a little more uh, mild, but it is, um, it's, you know, it's excellent. I can't, I, I mean, if you can get your hands on beer from Hill Farmstead, whatever it is, I, I, I fully recommend it. It's really good. That sounds tasty. Mm-hmm. Phil talked hop varietals and a floral taste <laughs> rather than citrus. He's Boy, getting good. I'm growing up. You can teach an old dog new tricks is what you can do. <laughs> Tom, why don't you tell us what we're enjoying today? You brought some fantastic beers for us. Yeah, uh, these are both from Transient Artisan Ales, uh, a brewery that we've talked about because I just love everything they do. And we've had them on uh, the podcast before. The first beer, uh, both are uh, double dry hopped IPAs. One is a double IPA, one is a single. Uh, the first beer, Unspeakable Joy, we opened quickly. Uh, Nick's level of disheartenment was so significant that we thought a beer called Unspeakable Joy might raise his That's where you got to start. And it appears as though it has, yeah. actually. Sure, He's smiling over there. Yes. <laughs> um, it's it's an absolutely terrific uh, beer. Both of these are sort of hazy. You get a little bit of the yeah, yeast at the cloudiness. bottom of the glass, mm. so they're unfiltered. Um Neither is overpowering. They're mm. just, they're delicious beers. He's so good at it. The second one you said was, was nine, eight point seven, but it's super light, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, f- floral. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, it doesn't, the first one had more punch to it than this one. Taste punch, yeah. but, but almost 2% ABV less yeah. in terms of liquor. God, I feel, I feel like the opposite. I feel like this one has more punch than Do the you? last mm-hmm. one. I, uh, it's, I think the, the, the first was, 
smoother for most of it. And it, it, to, like you said, it has that kind of a slight uh, bitter end note to mm-hmm. it. But yeah, I don't know. This one just, it's, it's hit me. It's hit, hitting all the zones of my tongue, girl. <laughs> all the zones. Of- mm-hmm. Yeah, Great no, beers from this. Really, really fantastic. Really, really good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> if you guys want to check out the uh, beers that we have on the podcast, uh, find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Search for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of our reviews. Let's do some speed round. Yo. <laughs> all right, so we're going to kick off speed round by talking about the coronavirus. And Nick, given the virus is named after a beer, it's kind of a bit surprising we haven't kicked it around I know, yet. I picked up a case <laughs> yeah. of corona. Yeah. So on Tuesday, one of the top officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned Americans that health experts foresee the novel coronavirus uh, kind of, uh, uh, has killed thousands spreading in the United States. The director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization uh, ominously warned, quote, it's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather uh, more a question of exactly when this will happen and how many people in this country will have severe illness. Uh, the agency tweeted uh, Tuesday evening that Americans should think about getting ready. Uh, while China's uh, battle to contain the epidemic has shown signs of success, we have nevertheless seen an explosion of cases in Iran, South Korea, and Italy, and elsewhere now. President Trump tried to reassure the American public by tweet that the coronavirus is very much under control in the United States, even as the stock market plunged amid concerns about the spread of the virus. Phil, over your lifetime, you've had the bird flu, SARS, and a mild case of the plague. And swine flu, too. <laughs> I forgot about the swine flu. Don't forget yes. about swine flu. In addition, your first to your first-hand experience with pandemics, you're also a scholar of international politics. So, so what do you make of the threat of a global pandemic racing out of control and its impact on the United States? Uh, what do I make of it? I, it, it seems sort of inevitable. Um, I, this is really uh, kind of depressing, but whether this is the one or not, I mean, this is something that has been talked about for a long time in a globalized world in which people move freely and quickly around the world. Um, these sort of things are going to happen. And so the, the issue is how do we respond with it, respond to it? The interesting thing to me that has, has emerged from, you know, China and from Iran now, even more than China is this dual pressure in which the global community is benefited by everyone being very open and cooperative about this, but individual countries have a benefit to keep it uh, in keeping it quiet, whether that's, you know, from a prestige sort of standpoint, like China, or whether it's about economic implications. Um, you see this tendency to try to try to squash it, even with Trump, right? I, I, he, he's giving a press conference with CDC people as we record this. So I haven't had a chance to hear it, but there's been this inherent tension between Trump who doesn't want to see the stock market dinged, doesn't want to be seen as having a disaster under his presidency versus the thing that this needs, which is total openness, right? There needs to be open discussion and communication, not certainly between countries, but even within the United States, right? The CDC needs to be talking about this. It's been gutted. I mean, this is where you bring, you know, Trump and his tendency. I mean, he's already said several things about, uh, how when the heat comes, this will go away right in the summer um, about. Yeah, right. So he said a number of things like that, that in the end are going to undermine him. What, what you need is a clear, credible government who can make sort of statements ab- about this. Um, this is a time where daily press conference, press briefings would be a really useful thing. And it's something that the Trump administration has done away with. So, I mean, I have concerns within the Trump administration, but I, again, as a, on a global level, this is, this is that tension about, you know, international cooperation and how, even though that's good for everyone, there are all sorts of incentives in place that keep countries from doing that. Nick, what's your read of all this? Um, it's it's a scary situation. It's one we that people have kind of, you know, posited that is supposed to happen in the near 
future and just never really materialize. And we assumed that to Phil's point in a globalized system where we have different, um, you know, uh, 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 <coughs> disease monitoring agencies and, and bodies that we would mitigate this to some extent, but having it start in China, especially I think was exceptionally problematic, um, considering whatever number that they're giving today, I'm assuming it's two to five times larger than it is. They're trying to control the narrative there. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You don't try and quarantine 700 million people and say that what 2000 people have died, something like that. Um, it's, it's, I, I, I'm not necessarily sure that this will be the one that everybody talks about, but, um, what really worries me is that it won't necessarily be the pandemic, but already in the media, you see it being blown, not blown out of proportion, but blown, um, into something that it isn't quite yet without any sort of response, either from the government or a good response from, uh, the medical community or anything saying that there are, you know, actual steps that you can take to mitigate this. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's scary. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of it yeah. yet. I'm not sure anybody else is either. Tom? Sort of, uh, my thoughts are dovetails with Phil's and it is, I've been reflecting on uh, the value of a free press and the, the massive importance of um, uh, an investigatory probing free press to try and keep people honest. Uh, of course, that doesn't exist in China. And it makes it exponentially easier for an authoritarian regime to keep secrets when there's no press pushing back. So uh, right now, the media feels a little bit ugly, you know, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or whomever. Um, But I am reminded that they have a hugely important function. And you couldn't begin to keep secrets here the way they do there. Uh, even if one wanted to, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not that our administration has better motives. I don't know whether they do or not, but the press matters even absolutely um, in, in a way for me that felt good to be reminded of. Right. Actually, I don't, God knows I don't that's want to talk about silver a, linings, as refreshing, in a pandemic, yeah. but, but it really did drive me to think about the press matters yeah. and, and having one is a good thing for us. The, the other part of that, that that is the more pessimistic side of it is I, I think you're 100% right, which is also why Iran is is cl- probably almost certainly a disaster, right? Their their guy got up in a, I don't know if you saw oh, that, he gave a press conference like visibly sweating. Yeah, who yeah. died? Who died? Um, yeah. he, oh, he died. I knew that he, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, the, the flip side of it is that I, I could see this being a significant pandemic, but not, you know, like world ending. But the the other part is the public's ability to actually process information and not view everything through negative partisanship and all this other stuff. And that, you know, one, one expert I saw said the mortality rate of this is similar to the Spanish influenza, right? The 1918 flu. But I think if you took the 1918 flu and laid over it a layer of uh, Twitter and all of the stuff that we have now, the amount of like massive panic and unwillingness to listen to experts and all this other stuff, this doubting of people who are actually, you know, knowledgeable about what they're talking about, it c- would only make that situation worse. And I worry about that, the sort of social elements and how that will contribute in a, in a, uh, to, to a, you know, a, a pandemic type situation. I, I think that's a really good point. This may be, and it's, it's, it's early, but it may be the first real foreign policy test for the Trump administration. Up until this point, they've had relatively minor little issues, but this, this could be a real one. And 
is, will the experts prevail? You know, will the Trump administration allow the CDC to take the lead here? Uh, will Homeland Security and all of those organizations that, you know, will the experts take control or are the loyalists? I mean, this is, this will be interesting to see how the Trump administration has structured itself and how they respond to that. And I, I hope it's successful. No, it won't happen. And this is going to be the reassertion <laughs> of the sovereign state system. And we're all they're They're going to start closing Thank down. Thank you for saving sovereign state system. Oh, somebody had to say it. <laughs> I could really see that there is going to be some sort of directive from the administration that we're going to start closing down flights to any of these more populated countries that have significant outbreaks. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people will view that to, to Phil's point from a very political uh, social perspective. Uh, as opposed to a you know disease mitigation perspective, when the CDC weighs in, it is not in, it's draconian. Right? I mean, it is like this is what's got to happen. So if that's the case, I think it has to be. You know, that's yeah. I, I hope that people trust the organization. I know we need to move on, but looking back at Trump's handling of the Ebola crisis when he had no say in anything, he was just a public person, doesn't instill a whole lot of confidence because he he had all sorts of stuff to say about how you know, all sorts of borders should be shut down and things should be done and how the CDC was downplaying the severity of the illness. And so we hope that that's not the direction he takes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go jump back to the court. So on Tuesday, President Trump lashed out at two liberal Supreme Court justices, further escalating his battle with the judicial system. Trump was in India and he's loving his time in India Mm -hmm. when he seized on the dissenting opinion last week by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, and a years-old comment by uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to demand that the two Democratic-appointed jurists recuse themselves from any cases involving him. Quote, I just thought it was so inappropriate, such a terrible statement for the Supreme Court justice, the president said. Justice Sotomayor issued her dissent uh, last week on an order by the court allowing the Trump administration to proceed with a plan to deny green cards to immigrants who are uh, deemed to be uh, likely to become public charges reliant on government aid programs. In her seven-page opinion, Justice Sotomayor wrote that the Trump administration had become too quick to run to the Supreme Court after uh, interim losses in the lower courts. Tom, you said this could lead to a good conversation about speech, propriety, and influence. Why don't, why don't you start us off here? Yeah, th- uh, three things to raise. The first is um, the question of the president pushing people around. Uh, th- his tweets at and about Bill Barr and the Department of Justice raised uh, significant issues. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing what people think about doing the same thing to the Supreme Court. I actually think it's less dangerous rather than more. Uh, and we, mm-hmm. we can talk about why. But second, hidden here is uh, who Ruth, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Justice Sotomayor should really be angry with. And that's her five colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, these rushes are things that it took five justices uh, to accept. And I, she's equally down on them, I suppose. But Donald Trump can't get to the Supreme Court without the Supreme Court's permission. Mm-hmm. And, and a dissent that suggests otherwise, and, and there's a sense in which she's saying he's, he's gaming the system, it, is a little troubling to me. Third is that this is the context in which these national injunctions have mm-hmm. come up. And one of the things that has uh, changed American law sufficiently that Justice Gorsuch is really hot to get a case on it is a national injunction. And and let me just make the connection and then see what you all think. 55 times in the last couple of years, uh, district court judges representing areas smaller than, you know, let's say a, a state have issued injunctions that stop conduct in the entire United States of America. 
This is in terms of number and in terms of uh, degree, vastly different than anything that's happened before. So the reason the administration has been pushing towards the Supreme Court is that district judges aren't stopping something in their jurisdiction that an appellate court in their jurisdiction can address. They're stopping something for the entire United States of America. Now, there's still a route through the appellate courts, but you get expedited hearing where there's an argument that there's going to be irreparable harm. A national injunction on almost anything is, it seems to me, definitionally a thing that could produce irreparable harm. So there's at least a colorable reason for uh, the administration to be moving more rapidly for early Supreme Court uh, decisions. Um, The last thing I'm just wondering is, do we really think the court's different than everybody else? Mm. You can't talk mean about uh, the Supreme Court or you've done something terrible. Uh, I I feel like this is a little overprotective as I've listened to people saying he's trying to sway the Supreme Court and, and that sort of thing. Look, these are people with life tenure. To get anything out of them, you need five. And the idea that the president tweeting about Justice Sotomayor uh, in, in ways that might change her mind, I think is sort of ludicrous. I mean, my guess is she could care. She doesn't care at all, right? She, I don't yeah. think she does. He does make a point that's worth thinking about. And, and maybe this is one we could take up. Uh, he argues that where people have said they don't trust him, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has more than once said things that were very negative about the president, called him a faker. And uh, maybe they shouldn't be deciding cases where he is a party or deeply involved. I'm not advocating Mm -hmm. for that, but I'm at least suggesting that it's not outside the realm of possibility that a judge who has said something about one of the litigants may have put herself or himself in a position where uh, bias is something that is not unfairly seen in the way they adjudicate a case. And this strikes me that there's an important distinction between what Ginsburg said when she directly right. criticized him and Sotomayor, who had a dissent. That's right. Right. That's right. His his attack on Sotomayor seems less relevant to me because this was she was making a legal argument. She was saying that you know I would like to see these these work through the court system, well, and, and 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 she did criticize the court as well for taking this up. So she was right. saying I'm tired of the the Trump administration going directly to the Supreme Court and my colleagues for allowing this to happen. She took a sort of oblique swing when she says. These things have, and only one party Mm -hmm. benefits from them. Uh, It it was more measured, it was less direct, and it was less obvious, but she's clearly taking a swing at the administration. What they're doing legally, though, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Phil, I've been watching Phil dying to get in. (laughs) Well, there's the the logic sort of all over the place, right? So, on one. The logic's all over the place. On one hand, you're saying that uh, that uh, you know the Supreme Court is no different than anybody else, and they're not influenced by this stuff, and that you know the president's playing this, and we should just disregard all of this. But at the same time, you're being critical of her for taking a vague shot at him that one person benefits. So I, it, it can't be both things. It can't be that the Supreme Court, like it, it's fair to take shots at the Supreme Court because they're insulated and they're grownups, but uh, but it's, it's it's somehow unfair for her to make a legal complaint about the president. Yeah, absolutely, those two things can be true simultaneously, <laughs> but that's not even what I said. So let me start with why they can be true simultaneously and then come back to a different part of it. Um, the justices have a a unique obligation to appear neutral. And they're all very careful about that. So at the state of the union, if you, they're the only ones that don't stand up and clap, they sit quietly, 
uh, uh, generally speaking, you know, <coughs> there's some deviation from that. Besides all the Democrats. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the obligation, as all judges do, to appear utterly unbiased as to the things that come in front of them. And anything that suggests they're not uh, is, is to use our word, problematic. The president doesn't have that. The president is biased. He's, he's definitionally biased. So it seems to me it's entirely possible to say the president can throw stones at the Supreme Court and they can't throw them back because that's the way the system needs to work. People insult judges all the time. And judges, generally speaking, take it because they know when they, they push back, they mm -hmm. wind up being perceived as biased. Now, the, the second thing is, my suggestion wasn't that they necessarily shouldn't say it. My suggestion was one has to examine the degree to which they can make judgments that are independent and unbiased in the eyes of the people watching them if they are critical of the person most closely associated with the cases in front of them. That's different than mm -hmm. saying they should never say anything. Uh, if the impeachment case had gone a different way and the court had to decide a question relative to impeachment, let's assume they would, would it be appropriate for Ruth Ginsburg to render an opinion as to somebody she said is a faker? And I guess I just ask you if the standard is, if, you're, if your answer is yes, would you want to be in front of a trial court judge who'd called you a name? Mm -hmm. I think the answer is you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but it, it just, it feels to me um, like it's worth talking about mm -hmm. here and, and, and thinking through, is it the case that the president influences the court? Does the court have a bias? Should it be careful about not responding? I think it's also fair to say that historically, the Supreme Court justices have reprimanded presidential administrations for what they've done, right, through their dissents. Mm -hmm. And to me, again, I, I draw a major distinction between me Ginsburg, too. her comments, which were ill-advised, and, and she has sort of walked away, but those were bad. She shouldn't have done that. And Sotomayor, who's who is saying what you're doing is is legally problematic for me, mm -hmm. and and I don't agree with that. And this should work its way normally through the channels, and you shouldn't jump around right. it. Uh, so I, I see those two as, as different. Yeah, uh, and I don't want to conflate them yeah. and, and suggest they're the same. No. Move on. All right. Okay. Because we got to talk about Bernie. So, and whether he's unstoppable or not. So, to the surprise of many, Senator Bernie Sanders has emerged as a front runner in the Democratic primary. He has won the most votes in the first three states while consolidating his base of liberals and young voters. Tuesday's debate in South Carolina was all about who could possibly slow Sanders' momentum. The anti Sanders lane is a traffic jam of more moderate candidates led by former Vice President Joe Biden and billionaire Michael Bloomberg. Sanders' frontrunner status has caused much consternation among Democratic circles. There is a fear that Bernie will not be able to build an inclusive base and that suburban gains Democrats made in the 2018 midterms could be lost. Many Democrats believe that for a general election, their nominee will need to pull in new voters and moderate Republicans repelled by Mr. Trump. Phil, Super Tuesday is roughly a week away, and Bernie appears to be surging at the right time. You've met Bernie. He's not smiled at you. Um, should should Democrats be panicked? What's What should we think of all this? I think I think the answer is we don't know, and and we have a people like to feel like they know, but I, I think we don't know. I keep coming around. Uh, there's sort of two different, uh, I mean, I, if things continue the way they are going, Bernie Sanders will win. I, I still think there's a lot that could change, but all the polls show that Super Tuesday, he's going to, you know, he's going to win most of the delegates and and be the sort of likely, likely winner. Um, th that could still change. But I think, you know, all the stuff about whether Democrats should be worried about this, 
There's there was one uh, one article that came out this week that looked at people. The people who are most fired up about Bernie Sanders are also in the category of people who are least likely to vote, and people who are most likely to vote are 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 not very fired up about Bernie Sanders. So that raises lots of red flags and concerns for Democrats, but. Here's the here's the flip side of this I, that I think is is interesting and that people aren't talking about. Um, uh, you know, in in my religion and politics class this semester, we've been talking about the culture war somewhat, and we and we talked a little bit about the book "What's the Matter with Kansas," right? Which which is this book in political uh, that talks about how if voters truly vote their self interest, Kansas should be a democratic state. It has it was a hotbed of sort of leftist activity, you know, years and years ago. Um, and the reason why Kansas and sort of the heartland has gone Republican is because Repub- the Republican Party successfully started playing the culture card a few years ago. And Democrats went along with it, even though the Democrats had the, the economic argument to win. What I see Bernie doing is a little bit the, the advice that would come out of that, which is that if Democrats want to win, they should hammer the economic arguments, the arguments about how this will actually benefit, you know, average Americans or whatever, which is what Bernie's doing. He's not playing the culture stuff so much. He's playing the economics argument. And I, 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 I'm not saying that that is how it will play out, but I think there's a very real possibility that this looks different from how Democrats have fought the fight in recent years, but that doesn't mean that it won't win. In fact, th- there's an argument to be made that it could be a whole bunch of people who are brought on board with that. Um, and, and so I, I think that that all, all the, the sort of, you know, prognostications about how this will play out, I, I think it's so different that we just, we just don't know the answer. Nick? Here's the thing from CBS News uh, <clears throat> after the last debate. Uh, how did the debate make you feel about the candidate uh, among uh, Democratic debate watchers? 47% nervous. optimistic 25% inspired 25% excited 16% optimistic or I'm sorry pessimistic uh, and then 13% uh, uninspired. That's some Which, good democratic math. I yes, that's up to 168%. So there's your democratic polling. Um, I, I, I Realistically, I think that the culture war argument is really, really effective if you you use it effectively. And it's it's coalesced around a candidate who uses it really, really effectively. I don't think he's the candidate to do that. I, I, I think that there, he has too much baggage and too many unknowns in terms of his policy uh, uh, perspectives that don't make him a viable candidate to actually win the election. Certainly, he's he's no, he's not charismatic. I can't say that. He's different. Mm-hmm. Um, he's inspiring to a lot of people, especially younger people oh. that think the the system is completely screwed to begin with. But if you're talking about uh, registered voters who've been around for a few suburbanites. Yeah who still think about socialism in the the conception that we think about it from the Cold War, which a lot of people do. I still think about it like that. You're sort of old, Nick. I'm kind of old. Yeah. Um, It's 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 just not there. There there are too many unknowns and and what ifs to make him viable. And I think he's going to get trounced if they if they choose him as a nominee or inevitably have to choose him as a nominee as the nominee. Trump is certainly excited about that prospect. Oh, it's going to be so good. God, I can't wait for that debate. <laughs> the Atlantic ran an article this week on the cost of Bernie Sanders' proposals. Now, no president ever gets even close to everything they want. But it's not, 
outside the realm of possibility that he gets some of what he wants. The 10-year cost of Bernie Sanders is somewhere between 50 and 60 trillion, T, trillion dollars of additional government spending. Uh, it would more than double the size of the federal government. I, it, it feels to me like there's going to be a point where somebody lands, not the knockout punch, but the numbers, but, you know, to go back to Phil's point about the economic argument, it feels to me like they're dancing around. We can't afford this, or this is too much, or this is, you're going to hurt the ticket, uh, down ticket, that sort of, somebody's got to say, America, no one cares about the debt anymore on the right or the left, but the guy that's going to do the worst debt uh, accumulation is the one that wants 60 trillion more dollars from all of you. I wonder, I wonder I, if that's not what turns the stage. Sure. I don't know. It, it could. I, you, and you saw in the debate last night, the Democrats started pushing in that mm-hmm. direction. Let's have this conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to matter though. I, I was reminded of the 2016 uh, Republican primary where the parties did everything they could to keep Trump out. And the voters said, we love him. There may be a similar dynamic where the Democratic voters say, yeah. we don't we don't care about any of this. Mm-hmm. We want Bernie. And I don't know what that means for a general election because the you know the voters were not following a rational strategy. If, if Bernie's the candidate, neither of which feel like the party-centric candidate, no. and we're just in this entirely new world. I, I, I think suburbs are fascinating. I think you know the Democratic gains in 2018 in the suburbs could be long-term and permanent, but I don't know if that's the case with Bernie. <laughs> Nick and I were talking about Imagine you'd said to somebody during the Reagan years, what's going to happen in 2020 is that you're going to have uh, a man in the White House as a Republican who wasn't one until late in life and who probably isn't one even now, and a very unusual guy at that. And running against him is going to be a socialist who runs on the Democratic ticket, but bows to it only in terms of saying he's a democratic socialist. I right. mean, people would have said, you can't be serious. How could this happen? What's happened to the parties yeah, exactly. that, that Bill and Phil love so much? Right. The parties are hollow shells <laughs> that mean nothing anymore. The, the mob is in control the of these parties right now. <laughs> this is what happens. This is democracy. This is the thing. If the mob was in control, those people who are his supporters would be more likely to vote. And they're not that. Mm-hmm. You can say that the mob is in control. They just have a, a I, I think a, a more pronounced voice than they used to. I, that doesn't I, necessarily mean that they're in control sure. or that it's going to turn into a victory kind of election. No, I think that's right. That's right. Although the Bernie Bernie brings a level of uncertainty that the Democratic Party is worried about, but I don't know if it necessarily means he loses. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think we're in an entirely new world now, mm-hmm. where there may be appeal. You could see states flip in ways that you didn't imagine. I, I think they've they've irreparably fractured the party at this point. And it's, 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 I think, look at the Republican uh, parties. We said the same thing. And now they're like lockstep behind Trump. It's just weird. We're in a weird time. Nick. I was looking recently at just as late as this week for Bernie Sanders medical records, which he's said everybody should release, but which post heart attack, it appears as though all he wants to send is a couple doctor's letters. Mm -hmm. Did I miss something on the internet or did he actually release the things that he has said for his whole career? He's he's healthy now. He's healthy now. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's go to our final uh, substantive talk- topic. Back to the maybe Supreme a low Court. blow, but I just yeah, yeah. no, I agree. Yeah. You should you should do these things. You should release your taxes. You should release your medical records. I think you should release neither, but you can't say you want that done right and then not do it. Right. It's fair enough. Yeah, and especially if you're in your seventies. So, all right, the Supreme Court is set to hear a case dealing with hikers cow pastures and oil pipelines along the Appalachian Trail. I just love that we're talking about a case dealing with hikers, cow pastures and the Supreme Court. Tom, I don't need to say anything else. Why don't you tell the listeners what's going on with this (laughs) This case and why it's so interesting. This is so great. So everybody's heard the old adage of a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it. 
uh, was there a noise and did it really fall? The central question in this case is whether a trail is land. <laughs> I just want that to sink in for a minute. So the Appalachian Trail runs essentially north-south, 2,200 miles. Uh, it runs over national park land, and much of it is administered by the U.S. Forest Service. Those are not the same thing. A company would like to build a pipeline that goes across the trail, but I should say 700 feet below the trail. There's already uh, several dozen that do this. The problem this time is that when that company was given approval by the Forest Service, environmental uh, activists sued. And they took the position that because this is on national forest, I'm sorry, national park lands, the Forest Service didn't have a right to approve a new pipeline because the Forest Service isn't the same as the national parks. Jesus Christ. So the question in front of the court, and if you listen to Oye.com, you know, Oye, 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 they've got all the audio. You have to listen to the interchange where they ask the court. And, and Justice Sotomayor's one, are you really telling us that this isn't land? It's just a trail, in which case the waiver that was granted uh, should stand. And the government's position is precisely that. Is it land or is it not? And how deep does a trail go? How deep does a trail go? To the center of the earth was one of the questions. So <laughs> is there authority below land to the center of the earth if the trail is land? It's just... It's the most perfect. How many <laughs> angels can dance in the head of a pin case in the history of the world? Now right? makes that again. There's no. several dozen pipelines <laughs> under this already. It's going to be, for goodness sakes, 600 feet below it. It's 40 inches around. No one will ever know. Yeah. Because you don't, of course, dig a trench and drop a pipe that low. You're driving it through. No one will ever know that this, this pipeline is there. <laughs> but it turns on this question of, is a trail land? Or is a trail a trail? So uh, let me let me clarify something. What's the government's position? The government's position is that the land, the trail yep. is land or it is not land? Yeah, the current government's position, let's uh, be clear. The current government position is that the waiver was appropriate when granted by the uh, Forest Service mm -hmm. because this is a trail. The environmentalist claim is this is land and it should be adjudicated consistent with uh, the national parks giving authority or that neither has authority and therefore courts should decide. So is the trail sprinkled on top of land? <laughs> what is the, like, what is the physical structure of the trail? Then? I, there is, but that's the thing. There is no physical structure. It's a, it's a way. So, you know, one of the description was, listen, the Appalachian trail isn't land. The Appalachian trail is a route. Not land. It's a route. Do you think this is one the same? <laughs> is this when the court comes back at nine nothing? Does this feel like it feels like this could be where they? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And they say that the 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 pipeline can say be built. The waiver was appropriately yeah. given because there's been yeah. dozens given this way before, and to change now doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. But how do we not on a podcast of this <laughs> oh. quality and maturity <laughs> not right. ask the question: <laughs> Is a trail <laughs> land or is it not? Oh, oh my. God, Phil, you like hiking. <laughs> it is. I'm going to just say, as a, as a philosophy major, this is a question of ontology, my friend. <laughs> you got to explain that. 
Ontology is the philosophy of what is. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is a trail land? What is its essence? What's its being? All right, we're cutting you and, off. And trail, <laughs> it, you know, living in Colorado, trails move, right? I mean, so you can't, the idea move. that, I mean, in Colorado, if there's a big storm that comes Whoa. through, the trail may have been this way. Now it's this way. Now it's that way. So it's not, it's not permanent. No. Yeah. It's a route. It's a route. It's not land. Is it physically on a piece of dirt? <laughs> sprinkled, Nick. Sprinkled. It's sprinkled on there? Is that what it is? <laughs> is that what the settlers did? They just sprinkled trail? It came in a bag marked trail and they sprinkled it? I don't know what I like better, the topic or that it's pissing Nick off. <laughs> asinine exactly right. bullshit that occupies our time. That occupies the federal government's time. <laughs> Nick's saying to himself, TC's not coming back <laughs> until July. <laughs> Oh my I'll, God. I'll be goddamned if I'm not coming back the week this decision comes down. Just you trust me. Uh, all right, Nick, we got time for samosas? I believe so. All right, so we all know when it comes to President Trump's diet, he's a Big Mac and a filet fish kind of guy. Well, his two-day trip to India has presented a challenge to uh, as roughly 80% of the population in India is Hindu and considers the cow sacred. At one point in the trip, Trump had a had high tea with the Prime Minister Modi and was served a samosa, which is a form of pastry. They're delicious, Nick. And this particular okay. samosa was filled with broccoli and corn. Now, I've never had a broccoli and corn one. That doesn't Sorry. sound as good. Not surprisingly, the president decided to pass on his broccoli samosa. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that Indian Twitter went nuts attacking the decision to serve the president of the United States a broccoli samosa. In fact, hashtag broccoli samosa took over <laughs> off on Twitter as Indians tried to figure out what had happened, why we did this, what was going on. And the question I have for you, gentlemen, is if you would eat a broccoli samosa in the same circumstance. Phil, you are a cosmopolitan guy. Yeah. Hell yeah. It sounds delicious. Give me a broccoli corn samosa right now. Yes. I'm so hungry. I would eat multiple. So you would. You would eat them. Absolutely. Okay. Nick? Wouldn't it be better if it was like a Philly cheesesteak samosa? I feel like that would be better. It's tough to get in India. Mm, tough to get. I don't... All right. Realistically, we're going to they're trying to make this a cultural argument. And there were 100,000 people, 100,000 Indians in a stadium cheering him on when he got. Oh, yeah. And the Indians were mad that they served Trump. Right. Broccoli samosa. I feel like they should be the arbiters of this situation. If they're upset about it, I probably shouldn't have given it to them. So you wouldn't eat it. No, they should have fucking flown at Arby's. Be done with it. Can I clarify something real quick? Yeah. <laughs> why Why were they mad? Because, of course, Donald Trump doesn't want broccoli. What are you doing, dumbass, serving him broccoli? Or is, like, a broccoli samosa this, like, ridiculously stupid thing in India? And There, there was like, a what? diagram on the outline, Phil, that you should have seen. So there's the Indians felt that there are samosas, which are delightful and delicious. And then there is broccoli. And, and Indians felt like these two shouldn't converge, right? If you have the president of the United States, give him a real tasty, delightful samosa, not a broccoli and corn samosa. Gotcha. So it's, yeah. it's elite. It. <laughs> yeah, I'll eat it too, to be honest. <clears throat> Nothing that happens to a politician is too awful. <laughs> and I, I'm just thinking of the slippery slope here because once one commits to eating a broccoli samosa, it could be insects. It could be all sorts of things yeah, eaten in other parts of point. the world. And yeah. I think once he does it, He's got to eat all that stuff. Good or once he resists it, he never has to eat any of it. Yeah. There really should just be like an Arby's on Air Force One. I, I got a feeling that crotchety it. Bernie wouldn't eat that broccoli samosa either. Oh, so no. I don't know. He would have mailed it to Phil and told <laughs> Phil to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> I would have Tell eaten us. it. Tell us. Bill would have. Oh, but here's, let me explain I'm, why. I'm shocked. <laughs> As, as, you know, having a lot of international students, I've eaten a lot of different international meals, not all of which I've liked. 
Uh, but I feel like culturally, you know, this is this is what you do. You know, you, you belly up and you eat down. You eat the broccoli and corn samosa. <laughs> <laughs> you call it a day. Nicest guy in the room is going to eat the samosa. <laughs> That's right. It's just insane. Oh, I don't feel like we need to finish that. one. No, no, this is it. Yeah, this is. Right. We got our answers. And we move on. Um, stall for me. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so if you're enjoying the podcast, please jump on Twitter and tweet at us, uh, and Facebook at Barstool Politics, Twitter at Barstool Paul. All the beers are on Untapped. Uh, buy our our merchandise, which is you know just fantastic, Nick. It is. It's super high quality, and we got some new stuff coming out. Norms and I really yeah. like the norm thing. Yeah. And I really what, what was what was it the norm. Um, what was it, Phil? Polite, politeness is a norm, dumbass. <laughs> I really like that, that one. That's, politeness is a norm, comma, dumbass. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> we need to grab correct. <laughs> um, yeah, you went through all that stuff. Uh, did we say untapped? We did, yeah. Yep. I'm just not paying attention. If they're still paying all. attention, they're they're all in. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, thank you as always for joining us. It's My always pleasure. a pleasure. It's great to be here. Uh, anything else, guys? Final thoughts? No. I'm going to go get Arby's after this. <laughs> Yes, we'll see you next week. Cheers.